You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. I was sitting in December. I, I was sitting at my desk and I got an email from a guy named Chris Meyer. And he said, Would you be willing to come down and be part of a press conference at the state legislature? And my first response to that in my brain was, Heck no, I want nothing to do with that. He was persistent. I think, Chris, I actually said no at first. And then you kept following up and following up. The thing that I was invited to come down and talk to was a bill at the Minnesota legislature uh, regarding parking reform, statewide parking reform. As far as I know, the first statewide parking reform effort in the United States. And I eventually did go down and do that. I was able to meet Chris. I was also able to meet uh, Tony Jordan in person uh, with the Parking Reform Network. So let me introduce the two of you because we're going to chat all about parking today. Chris Meyer, you are a legislative assistant in Minnesota Senator Omar, and let me make sure, uh, Fateh, I always yep. mess up his last name and I, I apologize <laughs> for that, but Omar Fateh, you are a legislative assistant in his office, right? Welcome to the podcast. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, a lot of people get his name wrong because uh, they try to pronounce it the way that Somalis do, which is Fata. But yeah. Oh, really? Because uh, I think but... that's what I would naturally <laughs> say too, but it's right, Fateh. Well, yeah, yeah uh, when his parents came here, they Americanized his name. And he goes by Fatih. So okay, I had never met him before, and I was able to meet him at the hearing. What a, what a beautiful guy! He was very kind and generous. So I'm I'm yeah. I'm happy to have that I, opportunity. I took note of of Rep Omar's pronunciation at the press conference and <laughs> pronounced it that way as a result. Uh, so I guess right. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that was Tony Jordan. Tony is the president of uh, the Parking Reform Network. Uh, one of the most important bottom-up groups that you're going to find in the United States. Tony, welcome as well to the Strong Arms Podcast. This is long overdue, I think. Well, thanks so much. I know this is one of your Strong Towns core core campaigns, and uh, we're really trying to build a network of of support for people around the country and really around the world who want to reform their parking rules and also push for on-street management and other um, reforms that help allow us to take advantage of yeah. a world with no parking mandates. Yeah. Well, Parking Reform Network is doing amazing work. I want to start with this bill. Chris, can you just talk a little bit about the genesis of this, how it came into existence? And then I'd like to chat a little bit about what the bill actually says. So how, how in the world did you wind up working for Senator Fateh and 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 then bringing this bill to fruition. Well, the issue is something that I had been working on for a long time, ever since I read the book back in 2010 or 2011. And then after I read the book, I wrote an opinion okay. piece. You, you just said the book as if it's like the book. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> for, for parking people, it is the yeah. book, right? Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's give yeah. Professor Shoup his due. Yeah. So the book is The High Cost of Free Parking by Donald Shoup. So I, I read that book and immediately felt the need to spread the word about mm -hmm. 
And so I wrote an opinion piece in the Minnesota Daily, the local college newspaper, and talked to whoever I could get to listen about the issue. And then I bought 13 copies of the book um, for each Minneapolis council member. And Ilhan, who was then a policy aide for council member Andrew Johnson, helped me deliver them around the offices. And Ilhan we got, Omar, now, the, now, now a, a U.S. representative from Minnesota. Right. Yep. That's right. Yep. And we got the city of Minneapolis to eliminate minimum parking mandates within a half mile of transit stations in the city, which covered most of the geography of the city and almost all the areas where development was happening. And we were the first city in the United States to do that. And then a lot of other cities started copying us. And then later I got on the Minneapolis Planning Commission and we finished the job. In 2021, we fully eliminated minimum parking mandates citywide for every use. Citywide. Mm -hmm. And year after that, there was an opening for Senator Fate's office. I, I knew him um, from my previous work in local politics and I uh, started working for him and I recommended that he take this issue on. And after I explained how eliminating parking minimums would do a lot to increase housing affordability and reduce carbon pollution, he was fully on board and we got the bill drafted and, and introduced. Who drafts a bill like this? Like who puts this together? The thing that got me, hmm. you sent me the copy of the bill and I'm like, oh, heck yeah, I can support, <laughs> I can support this. Who put that together? Did you put that together? Like how, how do these things get drafted? I made a request to Senate Council, and um, our Senate Council, Joan White, drafted the bill. Okay. Two paragraphs, right? I think it's probably 150 words, right? I mean, it's very short. Uh, it's four paragraphs now. Oh, it's, the government <laughs> has grown in size. We've doubled, <laughs> no. we've doubled the size of the legislation. Um, I like see how this works. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, it's still a very short bill. But we added a couple provisions just to clarify it. So, um, you know, we, we wanted to make sure that it didn't affect any bills on the books uh, regarding uh, disability law. We didn't want it to affect bicycle parking mandates. So we, we specified that. And then we added the name to it. Uh, it's the Minnesota People Over Parking Act. All right, Tony, I might have known you were going to be there. I don't know if it really clicked with me. I got up and I'm like, OK, I'm going to go do this thing. And then I got there and I'm like, whoa. Parking Reform Network's there. Talk a little bit about your genesis, too, of the parking, like, give us a little bit of the backstory on the Parking Reform Network, and then how you got roped into this and, and ended up at the same press conference I was at. For sure. Um, so I also read the book. I came across it pretty randomly in 2010, uh, and like Chris, was just completely captivated. I live, yeah. I would live across the street from a parking lot. I worked across the street. I could see a parking lot from my office. And as soon as I read Shoop's work, I just, I couldn't see the stuff. I couldn't see it the same way anymore. It's like, right. they live the glasses, you know, like, wow. So I kind of looked around locally at the time and, and our rules were pretty good in Portland. We actually didn't have parking in 2012, uh, 2002. They got rid of parking on court, parking mandates on corridors, but no one really built much with it. But then a couple years later, 2012, there was a boom of buildings on the street in Portland with no parking in the apartments and the neighborhoods got very upset. And so I started going to planning commission saying, hey, no, I read this book. We shouldn't do this. And I wrote to Professor Shoup. He wrote an op-ed and we lost. They actually reverted our parking mandates to a degree on these corridors. 
but I didn't give up. I, then I kind of dug in and over the next few years, um, next five years or so in Portland, I got involved in reforming those rules. Around 2015, I thought, you know, there's a lot of people who care about this issue or understand it. Not a lot, a lot, but like a fair number in the city. And I felt that, but they weren't organized. So a lot of what I started doing was just creating a mailing list and a blog and covering the issue. And then I got hooked up in the YIMBY movement um, around 2016, 2017, and was involved in Portland's zoning reforms for um, you know residential infill project, we call it, four plexes and six plexes with no parking citywide. We had statewide reforms starting to work. So Portland, had, Oregon has some non-legislative statewide reforms that occurred that are leading to many cities. I think we're at 13 or 14 statewide with no parking mandates citywide for all uses. And then around 2018, 2019, I was, um, Portland was on back on track where we should go. <laughs> and uh, the state was kind of moving in the right direction. And I was um, talking with Michael Anderson from Sightline Institute. Um, and we were trying to figure out if there was some place that could host like a, a real project, like it, his, in his mind, it was like the Green Lane project for parking, which was a project that people for bikes did. And we couldn't find a sponsor. And so eventually I just decided like, you got to be the, the change. I'm, right? I'm going to be the guy. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I had relationship with, with, with Professor Shoup and, and I knew a bunch of people that were working on this issue. And so we just started out, we launched right at the beginning of the pandemic, great time, like March 6th or 7th, 2020. Um, and, and then, and then organically have grown this, this organization, which serves a couple purposes in my mind. It's, it's, you know, we're, we're working on messaging similar to strong town and just tracking as we, you know, track the, where man, reforms have gone. And, but also just really the idea of this is such a multidisciplinary and coalition based activity. It's a big tent policy and there needs to be a, a way to connect people so that when the reforms are, are coming are coming along when there's some, when there's an opportunity for reform, we can quickly build a coalition that has some idea. You're not so I don't want to start at step one all the time, right? Trying to convince that you know the local affordable, uh, you know, like like maybe the affordable housing developers. They usually understand, but not like not everyone is always right on the same page. And so, how do we get the information out there and also just help the general public know? So I've known Chris for a few years. I think I first met him in person at the. Yimby Town, yeah, uh, happy hour a couple years ago in Portland, but I've been kind of tracking this, and he told me that this bill was coming, and there was going to be this giant wall of high cost of free parking books, and I there was, was like, yeah, <laughs> you del you delivered on that, uh -huh. and I was like, I was like, I really think I really think I got to get it out there if possible to uh to to be a part of this just because we want people to know we exist and also i think that there's a value of having a pretty independent voice that's willing to you know say the total truth on this and only have to worry about this issue itself like there's not a lot else going on at the parking reform network yeah so, yeah you focus on this yeah yeah and, and thank you both for coming to that um you know I, I appreciated you both being there and you know, we, I bought 130 copies for the legislators, which was the limit for how many I could buy. I could spend $3,000 without having to register as a lobbyist. So I, I went up to how how far I could uh, go and have been giving out those books. And we've had some good momentum on it. Yeah. Well, it meant a lot to me to get the invitation. It meant a lot to me to be there. Can we talk about what this bill says? Because I, I feel like the magic here is that, let me put it this way, Chris, and you you, you do this for a living. I've 
been asked to help with legislation here and there. I'm a Minnesotan. I, I've been down and testified a couple times and met with different legislators. I, I will tell you, it has universally been a waste of my time. A lot of work, not much progress. Things get complicated really fast. The legislative process is a marathon, not a sprint, and you have to be kind of deeply embedded in it. When you sent me this, it like cut through all the BS. I mean, this was a very kind of clean set mm -hmm. of things. Can you just describe the strategy here? Like, what is the bill? What are we trying to accomplish? And what would happen in Minnesota if this actually becomes law? Yeah. So in other places, you know, they have proposed a lot more complicated revisions that have certain exceptions or only apply in certain places. And I wanted to put for something forward that fully eliminated minimum parking mandates for all uses statewide. And that is a pretty simple bill to draft. It's short enough that I think I could read the whole thing. Which, I mean, do you want me to read it? Dude, go for it. it <laughs> okay. Do you have any do you have any voices that you do? Like can you read it no. in the voice of Sean Connery or something like that? No, I'm afraid not. But all right, you do I'll, your you do you then. Okay. So be it enacted by the legislature of the state of Minnesota, section one, minimum parking mandates prohibited, notwithstanding any other provision of law, home rule charter, or ordinance to the contrary, a political subdivision shall not impose minimum parking mandates for residential, commercial, or industrial properties within its jurisdiction. For purposes of this section, minimum parking mandate means a law, rule, or ordinance that specifies a number of off-street vehicle parking spaces, including within a garage or other enclosed area. This section does not prohibit a political subdivision from passing an ordinance under section 169.346, subdivision 4, related to disability parking spaces. This section does not apply to bicycle parking requirements, including for electric-assisted bicycles. This section may be cited as the Minnesota People Over Parking Act. That's it. That's it. If only all legislation was that short, Chris. I, I think it'd be a, <laughs> be a beautiful day. That's pretty simple and to the point, right? I mean, mm -hmm. Tony, have you have you seen any state try to do something like this up to this point? Not in a serious manner at all. There is this bill that was dropped last year in. I think Oklahoma, that we don't know. I think no one's spoken to the senator who dropped it. And it was very simple as well, but it was not a serious, uh, there was no press conference. There was no, no one reached out to any activists. So this, I think part of the key is, you know, so maybe it was just a favor. Someone, you know, I would love to know the story, but, but this was definitely, this is definitely the, the real, the real deal. Chris and, you know, Senator Fate are out there trying to pass this and and i think that's that's exciting we've seen bills of different scope there was an effort in florida maybe to try and get something but now they that that's probably not happening this session i think we're going to see a couple things that are close to this maybe this year but this is definitely groundbreaking definitely leading the leading the country i will say yeah. you know it, it it is very short but it was a lot of work to get it right oh i bet <laughs> uh, yeah like the the definition of minimum parking mandate took a lot of work, several revisions. Uh, we wanted to make sure that it did include garage requirements. We had to add that. Uh, but we were the first ones to really put something serious forward. So we wanted to make sure that we got it right so it could be a model for other places as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. 
what will happen if this passes? Uh, cities will have to repeal their parking mandates everywhere across Minnesota, or, or they will be null and void. I mean, is that yeah. that's basically like the result, right? As simple yeah. as it gets. Yeah, there are a lot of city level ordinances that are in conflict with state law that are on the books, you know, and, and periodically we try to clean them up. But any law that contradicts the state law will not be enforceable. It could be a tricky thing, I think, sometimes for cities. Sometimes the parking mandates are like that column in, X, in, an X, in a spreadsheet that when you delete it, everything else goes to not a number or whatever, right? Like Because I've seen in other cities that have done the reform, they have to maintain these tables as like because they tie other ratios to them. They tie bicycle parking ratios or they tie, you know, so it, it really, it, it trickles down. It really goes to show how I think convoluted zoning code yeah. is and, and how yeah. trouble, and that makes it it's very hard to modify. That's part of why you, as you mentioned, we get stuck, right? Because like you're afraid to go in and touch these things because you don't know what might break. Well, let's talk about that stuck thing because I myself am uh, generally not in favor of state preemption. And in fact, I'd say as a movement, Strong Towns is really about empowering cities. How do we give them the biggest toolbox possible? And how do we give them lots of responsibility and lots of ability to respond to things and adapt? It took me about 10 seconds after reading this bill to go, I can support this, even though it is a state preemption. One of you two, and maybe we'll start with Chris, why is this one of those things that state preemption becomes, I think, a, a hopefully a nonpartisan, but really like a no-brainer, I think, across the board? Why is this like the place where maybe we could all agree yeah. it's, it's, it's worthwhile? Yeah. And that is the biggest issue that we have um, in, in talking with legislators. I, I've talked to many legislators who will say, this seems like really good policy, but I'm wary of taking away local control from cities. I believe that we should on this issue uh, because when we elevate the discussion to the state level, people are thinking about broader issues like climate action and housing affordability instead of local parochial issues. Cities have only ever had the authority to implement zoning because the state gave them that authority in the 1920s. From the start, the state has always set parameters around how they can do that zoning, and they have changed those parameters over time. You know, they banned, you know, racial segregation. Right? I I think that everyone would agree. Well, I, I can give that- you a I can give you a a gritty one that won't be very controversial. A couple of decades ago, the state came out and said, if you've got a non-conforming lot, you can't make it unbuildable. Right. I mean, that comes right from Supreme Court decisions. The state has done that frequently in the 30 years that I've been doing zoning-related work. Yeah. Yeah. And they've set many other parameters as well. And I think they should just add this one to it because there's not a, an argument for why minimum parking mandates would lead to better outcomes in any particular area. Like It's universally a bad policy across the state. Tony, universal? I agree. I think that, as you mentioned, there's a lot of things that cities aren't allowed to do. <laughs> we have a lot of personal freedoms in this country that cities can't you know, enjoy just because they want to. And this, I think when we when we look at the impact of these rules over the many years, they, they are impacting people's ability to live in places that we know 
they want to live. They not only make it you know difficult to build places that people generally we know like to live in, but then when they are allowed to be built, they're too expensive for regular people to move into you know, because they're 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 uncommon and the demand is so high for them. So I think that Chris's point as well, like these are. I've seen a lot of parking mandates in, over the last few years, and and they're they're old and they're ridiculous, and there's very little. It's impossible to keep them up to date at best. You know, so one of the one of the things is you know, it's ironic because one of the arguments is this is a one size fits all rule, and it's like well, but the the state preemption, but it's like these rules are one size fits all, and who can you trust yeah. to do to do the study? I had a discussion with a with a opponent of this at the press conference and they were, you know, insistent that yeah, well, there needs to be a study done. I said, well, the person building opening the business or financing the business can be responsible to do the study. And they have money on the line. And they said, well, no, the city should have it's like you don't know where these all the city's gonna do if they do a study is open up the ITE manual and look at some number that came out of nowhere right. and exactly. assign that. You know, completely arbitrary. <laughs> Yeah, there's no, be there's no study. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think we'll see how this shakes out. I don't know that that cities are completely, you know, their hands are completely tied either in the case of, you know, someone wants to, like, I think there's this boogeyman of someone's going to come build some giant apartment or huge, you know, Howland walled city or something with, with you know, 10,000 people and no parking. It's probably not going to happen. And there are many other avenues. I think, you know, Nolan Gray with the arbitrary lines, you know, like there's other ways to protect quality of life insofar as in this case, we're really just talking about car congestion, right? That's the only negative right. potential is, is someone is well, there might be a difficult to park on your street. Let me ask this question. Cause I, I feel like this gets to the opposite side of the, the preemption question right now. Cities can do this by themselves. Minneapolis has done it. Portland, you talked about did it in places and then went back on it. To me, this is a, it's one of the few policies that I think are, is truly universal. No city should have parking mandates. Why does the state need to preempt? Why does the state need to step in? Why can't cities do this themselves? Yeah, so maybe, there are four cities that I know of in Minnesota that have done this so far. Minneapolis, St. Paul, Duluth, and Wilmer, Minnesota have all eliminated their parking minimums. If you talk to Brainerd, they would pretend they've done it, but they've, you know, it's a half- it's a half measure. I think they, we might be on Tony's map as like a, a light pink dot as opposed to a bright red dot. So, <laughs> And there, there are a lot of other cities that have made substantial reforms that get most of the way there. Yeah. Uh, but there are more than 800 cities in Minnesota. And it will take an awful long time to go through each one of them. And this is something that the state should recognize, that it's just a bad policy if we want to change direction on on climate change and we want to make our state more affordable, this is something that they should apply statewide. I can admit it. There are much, much more important and pressing things that our city and state governments and regional governments should be dealing with. Like this is not, this is, this is only an important issue because we've somehow got this brain worm that these are something that should, that should be regulated by the government. And they're not we quickly should get rid of them and move on to actually the hard work of building transit or, you know, like, or, or building affordable housing. Like that's the hard work. This is just like a, a, a speed bump, but it's a really, really stubborn one. <laughs> and and the other things that we need to do are so much more difficult. Like for 
getting more public transit. I mean, we are doing that. Minnesota made a historic investment in public transit last session, and there's a lot more to do on that, but that takes money. Like for, for this People Over Parking Act, we just, with a few paragraphs, can you know stop something bad from happening all all we need to do is is stop doing something it doesn't take any money or or other you know serious effort to to make this happen i think the argument that i made at the press conference was that it will get us unstuck yeah. and i look at the 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 policy outcome being a universal good and the transition cost at every city council meeting to redo this i mean let, let's let's just say this this way if in portland this is controversial in Duluth and Bemidji and Grand Rapids and Detroit Lakes, it's it is going to be really controversial to 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 stick to this. And I I don't think that is because of public sentiment or public will. I feel like it's because of the nature of the way city governments and public hearing and zoning works. If you have a policy at the city level that benefits everybody in the city by you know, let's put a dollar amount on it, $10 a year, but one person or four people, it negatively impacts by a hundred dollars a year or a thousand dollars a year. That one person is going to show up and have an outsized complaint, even though in aggregate, the benefit is immensely positive. And that's been my experience with parking reform in every single city that I've, I've worked on it. We have broad consensus on what should happen. The policy people are like, this is a really good policy. The elected officials will say, yep, we support this. And then you'll have the public hearing and like the two oddball cases will show up and they'll say things like the woman at the press conference we were at, there's a UPS store and people can't park there. And so they drive to the suburbs and I'm like, well, then the UPS people should build more parking. Like nothing in the, your, nothing in this bill prevents people from actually building parking. It just says the government's not going to make you build it, right? Right. I think that's yeah. a great point. I've really come to the conclusion now, having been steeped in this for quite a while, there are like, you know, who opposes this? And and I, I think largely it is, it's protectionism. It's people who've got a moat. They've got a business that does well on a main street or on a corridor. They don't have parking. They're worried about someone muscling in or even there's a you know a trope that developers fund this this advocacy which I, they don't and i think part of why they don't is I, the we developers don't get that are making money, money right yeah, the yeah. developers that are making money they have already developed a business model that adapted to the zoning code where they are they actually right. are they don't necessarily want you to go shake it up because then that means the small scale developers are going to come in and maybe eat their lunch and so i think there's mm -hmm. like there is an inertia around this and i think a lot of the opponents are really you got to just really look, are they benefiting personally from the current status quo? Almost surely they are, I would say. Right. And a lot of the big developers know how to work the system. They have the consultants and lawyers and lobbyists, and they have an advantage when the zoning is complex because they know how to get a variance and a small developer might not have that. So the, the, the big developers don't necessarily have an incentive to make this change. Another thing I wanted to um, respond to is that don't take it for granted that it's easier to make this change in in big cities because in, in in the big cities that's where you're going to have you know a lot of congestion on on the street parking right so Chris it's bizarre here that anyone in my city ever complains about parking because like literally <laughs> I, every street has parking along both sides with nobody on it like no cars on it it, it is insane you could 
always find a parking spot within half a block of where you're going. And people consider that in a small town, that is, we need more parking, right? I mean, it really is crazy. So I hear my, you. My, my theory on what sets the big cities apart and why, why you've seen more reforms in them up to now is you have more people who care about climate action as, as, as an additional issue to all the affordabilities and, and viability issues for, for businesses. Um, but the policy is still just as bad in a small town. If you look at the list by, by population, you know, there's a few big cities that have done this, but, but it's mostly mid mid-size and smaller cities. Part of that I think is the process that we're talking about is usually more convoluted or or it takes longer in the larger city there's more stakeholders that are supposed to be addressed in a smaller city sometimes lightning strikes right you get a city commissioner or a planning or someone and two people can kind of get together and maybe maybe make it happen so i think like you know there is this idea that it works better in big cities but i think that you know probably i mean i haven't i should know this but like you know i think that most of the cities that have no parking mandate citywide are you know some of them are really small, actually. A lot of them are really small. And places and like New like, York haven't gotten rid of theirs yet. <laughs> right. They're still trying. Because once again, because New York gets to change its zoning code like once every, for, I mean, they haven't done it since 1963 or something, right? Like it's just never, right. it's so hard because those codes are so, where smaller cities a lot of times, they actually just like throw the zoning code out and bring in a form-based code. Like they just, you know, they they can, they can they're a little more nimble, I think. Yeah. But one thing, Chuck, I was thinking was, you know, just all the money spent. If if you were to for all these eight hundred jurisdictions in, in is it eight hundred six hundred however hundreds of jurisdictions in every eight hundred and fifty two cities we have I think eight hundred fifty four something like that in every in every state just the amount of staff time like like pure just bureaucratic and I'm not like a super anti bureaucracy person but the total bureaucratic waste of making every city do this like what could you fund like get to work on you know, planning your bus route or something yeah. else instead. Anything's better than, than arguing yeah. about this. <laughs> Let's get cities unstuck. Um, I want to, I want to ask, and, and this may be a sensitive thing. I'm not a political person in the sense that I'm not like, I don't, the whole game of this person supports this bill and this person supports that bill. And they come together behind the scenes and like, Chris, that that's a different world. And Tony, that's a that's a that's a world that I struggle in and struggle to make sense of. I know that, you know, Senator Pate seemed like a really nice guy. And very I mean, I actually invited him to come up to Brainerd sometime. He's like, Oh yeah, I would love I'd love to do that. And he's like, if you're down here, let me know and stop in. So I mean, I feel like I made a friend, if nothing else. I mean, he seemed like a very nice guy. I had never met the Congresswoman, uh, Ilan Omar, before. Obviously, she's in the news a lot nationally, but she was, again, a very cordial person, someone I felt like, you know, I could work with. Like, she was she was very nice. And certainly on this bill, I think we see eye to eye. How difficult is it in a legislature that is fairly, I mean, we have a a democrat leaning legislature now you know nationally we've 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 rolled out this big progressive agenda over the last year um because we had kind of a mandate for left of center governance but that doesn't mean that there aren't debates that go on and there isn't uh you know a difficulty within the legislature what are some of the political hurdles here what are some of the things that having this be kind of an urban led and i would even say led by this particular senator 
uh, and his district in South Minneapolis, mm-hmm. which demographically is very different than my kind of Scandinavian German uh, city up here. Mm-hmm. How does some of this work its way through good and bad uh, over the coming months, you think? So my boss is one of the only members of the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, uh, in in the legislature. So he's definitely on on the far left of of the legislature, and that has been an issue um, with getting some of the GOP members on board. I've had a number of conversations where people said, you know, if this had been put forward by a Republican, I would probably be supportive of it. <laughs> that was something that. We did everything we could to, to make it bipartisan. It's one of the reasons I really wanted you to be at the press event, because I know that you've done a w- lot of work on fiscal responsibility and, and and pushing for the issue from from that angle. We do have at least one representative who's supportive from the other party. Uh, representative Garofalo tweeted in, in, in support of it. And a lot of other GOP legislators have remained open to it and I think might ultimately support it. That's one hurdle is I, I work for the person that I do and that's the opportunity that I had to persuade him to, to put it forward and and he went with it with, with gusto and I think it was worthwhile doing that. Um, even if it would have been better to, to try to have bipartisan uh, co-author, we didn't have one at the time and we needed to move forward with it. That's one hurdle. I mean, the other big hurdle, like I mentioned, is, is just concern about local control. Um, a lot of legislators who would say, that they, they encourage their cities to do this, but don't necessarily think that, that they should override local control on that. And, you know, the League of Minnesota Cities can activate lots of people to oppose that. Um, they can get their council members and mayors to come and testify and speak against bills. They did that last time around. I heard from one person who was on a city council at the time, and he said that when they did that, they didn't the the elected officials didn't get much notice that there was going to be this resolution, you know, opposing um, some preemption that happened last year. And, you know, they kind of deferred to their city administrators and, and the full-time staff uh, and didn't really have a lot of discussion about it. But but the league has you know been very effective at being able to get lots of local electeds to oppose things. And that's something that, you know, uh, legislators are are concerned about. How do we build the coalition to get these things passed? Chris, maybe you should go first, but Tony, I'm also interested in how we build these coalitions in in other states. What's the steps to to getting this thing? We do have a pretty large coalition so far. Um, We have a lot of environmental groups like the Sierra Club, MN350, organizations like that. We've got labor. The the SEIU is extremely supportive of this. And we've got a lot of different housing organizations uh, like the Minnesota Housing Partnership and and uh, Minnesota Housing First, we definitely have more work to do getting people who are more GOP aligned on it. And like I said, I think if, if a Republican had put it forward, a lot of them would have jumped right on it because it is a free market libertarian thing that we're doing. Right. And <laughs> it is ironic. And I did not know that that your boss was a part of the Socialist Party. Say it the right way. Because parking is the most socialist yeah. of socialist part. I mean, <laughs> right. The article that I wrote in, in the Minnesota Daily in 2011 was end parking lot socialism, right? Like, yeah, yeah. 
Well, I mean, let, I, let's create a law where private property owners have to provide public parking for other people in order to do basic things. If you are someone who wants to demonize the idea of socialism, like that is that is it. Just, you know, look at parking mandates. So, so, I, so, so my, my boss is, he, he's part of the DFL, the Democratic Farmer Labor Party, uh, but he's also endorsed by the Democratic Socialists of America. Gotcha. And, 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 gotcha. and, and, and if they've only endorsed a few legislators in, in Minnesota, so it's a small number. Okay, got you, Tony. How do we how do we build this coalition? If yeah. you're looking at other states and we're going to bring a a bill like this forward, how should they be thinking about this? It's really interesting who opposes this, and it's very chaotic, right? There are right. plenty of of DSA people who will actually in other places be very opposed to these reforms. Um, Absolutely, you know, yeah. you have I think it's the American Experiment or whatever mm -hmm. that's a you know supposedly pretty libertarian free market organization in Minnesota that wrote an op-ed about when I spoke to the Duluth planning commission about how, you know, anti-car group is trying to stop the yeah. city from requiring private people from making parking spaces. It's like, this is, it's all over. And I think that it's frustrating, but it's also such a great opportunity because it shows that these are not strongly held opinions in a way people line up there is this kind of signaling oh it's a leftist that proposed it here then the right wing is going to oppose it sometimes the centrists are the ones opposed to it so that's a great opportunity i think it just in education and and continuing to do outreach and that's a lot of the work that we're trying to do with the parking reform network like i asked shoop last february i said how many people in the united states do you think have a understanding of what you what you're teaching people is it a million? Is it 2 million? Is it five? And we got 300 million people. And it's like, I don't know, but, it, but we've, we've done a lot of work in the last year with Henry Grabar's book and, you know, our work and your work, these bills getting press, like we've 10 X or 20 X the number of people who get parking reform. And I mm -hmm. think that there's going to be a move, a moment here where, you know, we're going to help. We have a goal to eliminate parking mandates, just like you do countrywide. Um, we're hiring a person policy director who, Part of it is just yeah, mapping it out. Where do we have, and we kind of got it marked out, transportation, housing, environment, and other special interest groups, like making sure there's a partner at the statewide level and at the major cities in across the country so that, that there's this, this base education. A lot of times, they, when I first got started in this, the first people I went to were bicycle advocates. I was a bicyclist, and they didn't know. I was like, hey, have you guys heard about this parking thing? And they was like, no. And then we got them on board. And the beautiful thing was then when the Yimby scene started here in or in Portland, the or the pro, you know, more housing, the bike people showed up for the housing. And then the the housing people get involved in the and we we had tenants like there was such a coalition. So I think this is an issue with like like we're just building coalitions and that's going to pay off beyond parking too. Like there's really like it's a it's a an issue that brings people together to talk. So I think. At the core, just education. I find when people understand the price, parking costs, the space it takes up, how stupid the rules are. We're talking things like one per hundred square feet for a haunted house in Gilbert, Arizona, or uh -huh. you know, or or when we were in Charlotte last year, I, I looked up a bunch. It's like drive-in movie theaters. Like you know, you don't need to tell like these places, moth and butterfly breeding facilities. They're ridiculous, and so you. I have this fake equation. It's like the cost times the space times the mandate leads to, and then everything that all the, all the negative things, the runoff and the heat islands and the congestion, like every, every mandate, every one of those numbers is just multiplying this problem bigger and bigger. And I, th I think that people are actually very 
receptive to that message. They might not become a Shupista. They might not become a Strong Towns member. But a lot of the game is is just reducing, eroding opposition. And I think that the basic education is going to to get there. Like you'll find some organizations that will become a coalition member, but can you soften the opposition from mm-hmm. someone is is really I think how we're politically going to win. And and Parking Farm Network isn't going to be, you know, in the city in the the halls of Congress pushing this. Our role is to to just work with these local organizational members and statewide organizational members and say, you know, we want to provide you the resources and the education so that when this issue when the time is right, you can, you can get it over the line or get a stronger bill, you know, and there will be some incrementalism, I'm sure, you know, like, but we're going to, it's moving. The trains, trains moving, I think. It definitely is. And I think one of the big benefits of this bill and, and a benefit of putting it forward in its most ambitious form is that we were really generating a lot of this education. Um, we, we have had so many conversations beyond just parking minimums, we're really educating people about better parking policy overall, which is something that people have really neglected, but things like, you know, parking benefit districts or dynamic pricing or all kinds of things like that. And we have really softened the opposition. We we anticipated a lot more people opposing this than actually came out and, and went against it because we had a lot of conversations. And there are some people who still are not for it, but they're not coming out fighting against it. We've been able to build a pretty big coalition. And I really feel like this is an issue that once you understand it, that is persuasion. Like it's hard for someone to read the full book, the high cost of free parking and still come away with it, believing that minimum parking mandates are a good idea. Right. Right. I find that most people who have a reaction to this believe that if this, if this passes, there will be no place to park. Like this actually like go in and rip out parking. And once we have this conversation, well, I'll say after our press conference, the website Alpha News, which I have to acknowledge I'd never heard of, it seems to be a right of sender publication kind of Mm -hmm. in the lines of, let me just say there in the comments, there was a lot of talk about Mogadishu and, and things that were very unsavory. I reached out to them because they mentioned me in the each of the first four paragraphs of the article they wrote about this. And I thought, well, this is an interesting uh, place to engage with. Um, they're running an op-ed that I wrote in support of this bill. And it's it's not out yet. It's going to be out. By the time this podcast is released, it will be out. Um, and yeah. I had a chat with their publisher and he's like, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. This is really good. That's really and, great. You know, I really do think that they they probably were just instinctively against it because of yes of who my boss is what he stands for I, <laughs> and i think there's there's a there's an element of race that is very unsavory i think there's also an element of cars equal freedom and anything that seems anti car feels anti freedom but once you start talking about you know what a local government mandate is i mean you just are you for local government mandates? And generally there's a whole group of people who are like, no, I'm against government mandates. Well, okay. Why this one? Let me ask about the chamber of commerce. If we think nationally and certainly every state has, you know, statewide chambers of commerce and all that, it seems like this is a logical place for this coalition to grow. I have not gotten the vibe from what I'll just say, like the business community that they're on board with this either in Minnesota or in other places. Yet this seems like a coalition that 
with a little bit of education should certainly be aligned with the idea of reducing these mandates. Chris, is there anything there that's that's happened or taken place? I reached out to the chamber and I haven't gotten a response yet. So okay. I, I don't know where they're at on it. I've heard secondhand uh, that they're probably supportive, but they haven't come okay. out with a position publicly. Okay. But but certainly has not come out like the the coalition of Greater Minnesota Cities issued their press release before yeah. I even walked out the door of the press conference. Mm-hmm. Um the league a couple of days later, they've not done anything like that. Said like we're against this. There's no, not no. Been that. Okay. And I, I sometimes say nothing is a win too. Tony, going a little bit back to like when we talked about the moats or the protectionism here. I mean, I remember when we were approached before the press conference by that woman who was opposing the the what we were doing, and she said, "I'm from some business." It was a business coalition association, in Minneapolis. Yeah. And yeah. I and I, I asked her. I said, "Are you you know do you represent only businesses that currently exist, or do you also care about businesses that like are trying to form?" And I think that's I think there is something there about those interest groups are largely built around supporting their current businesses, and it's a harder message. There's a lot of really great reasons economically for economic development to to pursue to do these reforms. I mean, you know, your friend Joe Minicosi, urban, you know, talking about just the the drain yeah. on on city budgets from these like the parking lot doesn't pay taxes. Like, and, well, and, and really, if I'm Walmart, <laughs> if I'm Costco, I love parking mandates. If I'm right. a small business owner trying to get my shop started in an older building in the downtown, it's going to prevent me from doing anything. But I think one of the problems here is similar to in the, de- the developer discussion, the people who are most hurt by this are usually ones that don't have the resources or the political pull yet. The people, right. So there's a little bit of a, like, by the time your business is successful, you're, and then a lot of times I think in smaller places too, smaller towns or not, not just smaller towns, you know, business leaders often move into positions of political leadership. That's a little bit of what we're working with. And we just need to keep, you know, highlighting the stories of people who can't open a coffee shop you know, a neighborhood coffee shop because they want 18 parking spaces in, you know, or, or whatever, uh, someone who can't add beds to a adult foster facility because they want more parking spaces. Like those stories I think are really, you know, and strong towns doing a great job of like highlighting things like that in order to let people really understand what we're talking about. We're asking a lot of the wrong questions. We shouldn't be asking people, should we get rid of parking mandates? It's like, what is important for you in your city? This is in the way. Like, you know, yeah. like this is this is this is stopping that from happening. There are so many business proposals that aren't viable because of the minimum parking mandates. We had one just yesterday in the suburb of Maple Grove. They rejected a new business that is just surrounded by huge surface parking lots, but they weren't meeting their arbitrary mandates to add even more. There was a church in Senator Fate's district that wanted to convert to affordable housing. And they can because Minneapolis got rid of their parking minimums. But if those minimums had been in place, it would have been impossible. And there, there are so many places. I'm from a town of, of 6,000 people, Sturgis, South Dakota. We have a nice downtown Main Street there. It would be illegal to rebuild under parking minimums because there'd be too much parking in between. I didn't know you were from Sturgis, Chris. Yeah. That changes yeah. changes everything about how I think about you. <laughs> yeah, home of the motorcycle um, rally. <laughs> <laughs> um, part of the pushback that I've seen, and certainly the league had part of this, or, or the Coalition of Greater Minnesota Cities had this as part of their thing, was that this is an urban issue. Mm-hmm. Cities should do this. The seven-county metro should do this. 
but leave our small cities, leave our rural areas alone. And I suspect that a lot of the political conversation will fall along those lines too. The more urban uh, politicians will probably tend to support this more eagerly, and some of the rural politicians will tend to oppose it a little more uh, vigorously. If you were to make the case to small towns, if you were to make the case to rural areas that this is important, what, what would that case be? Yeah, if you want to have the nice small main streets that everyone loves, you need to get rid of these parking mandates because they are making those small walkable main streets illegal and reducing your tax base and you know making your small city more expensive. The city of Wilmer, which is a you know a small city, is, I think about twenty thousand people or so. They understood the problems with their parking mandates and got rid of them this summer. It, it's a problem that applies everywhere, not just the big cities. Mm -hmm. Tony, I think one of the arguments here is really what what do you have to lose? Even what's going to happen? I often ask you like, what's the, what's the worst thing that happens here? And you know, as you point out, we're not removing parking spaces. You look at anytime I read something about a city, I drop it in Google Maps. I look at it. You know, there's not a parking problem. What is what is the real thing that you're worried about happening in your city? So I think that that this is you know, and why are you wasting time and and having these regulations that are going to prevent? You know, when investment shows up in a place, that doesn't happen all the time. And I think that that that's what people don't recognize is like these these rules when when someone does want to build something in your city and then they have to jump to these hoops you might lose out on 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 precious investment that that can really make life better for people in a small in a rural community or provide provide resources or, or amenities that don't exist there and so you, you know i suppose that i'm sure there are communities that don't want any amenities but i mean i think at the same time you know the risk of of someone coming and building some large development is is probably pretty small outside of metro areas in most places and so they're just kind of unnecessary and i think for a small city a lot of it is looking at that economic infrastructure yeah and tax base issue about why you know these rules are harmful for their for their community yeah and if you do have a big development in a place that doesn't have good public transit or other, other alternatives the people building it are almost certainly going to build a large amount of parking because they know that that's what their customers will demand the, the thing to look at is like how much parking would have been built otherwise if there weren't any mandates and then compare that to what the mandate is. And the, and, and the difference between that is is the impact of, of the mandate, right? So in Minneapolis, when we eliminated uh, parking minimums, we started seeing builders build about 0 0.65 to 0 0.7 parking spots per unit when they had previously been required to build 1.0. So the difference between the mandate and, and what people wanted to actually build was you know, 0.3 to 0.35, yeah. yeah, which is a big deal. Yeah. It, it really deal. helped affordability a lot. And Minneapolis has been recognized nationally for keeping rents stable. And that was a big part of why, because you can save about 200 to $300 a month if you are able to opt out of, of a parking spot. So in a completely car dependent place, like imagine a place where you know walking hasn't been invented. Everyone's just driving everywhere, right? The parking mandates are still often exceeding uh, what people need for for how many cars they have. Uh, still uh, so, often, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, feel like we've. I feel like one of the contributions we've done is to document yeah. just painfully 
how you know grotesquely oversupplied parking is. Yeah, especially Absolutely. in small towns. On the rural issue, there's an idea, uh, an example that popped into my head. I've had two people across the country, one in Oregon, one in Florida, contact me in the last year that have um, wineries, right? So these are rural properties and they have event spaces and they actually provide a lot of parking. Another aspect of this that is less understood, but maybe more impactful in places like this is, is it's not just requiring parking, it's requiring a lot about the type of parking. So these these businesses can't open because they want them, they want this winery, a farm to pave this gravel lot. Yeah. And so like these rules, when you get rid of these onerous regulations, it allows flexibility. So someone who owns a rural property and really doesn't want to deal with the water runoff by having it soak into the ground and wants to have a gravel lot because, you know, they're doing events, you want them to pay like what are we doing? Like, I think like right. sometimes it's like really slow down and think like, what is the true knock on impact of requiring these spaces and the paving and all of that. So I think for rural communities, water quality issues and just mm -hmm. the infrastructure to deal with the impact of parking is something that people don't think about that much. And it's, it's huge. And it really, that stifles, like once again, we're not even talking about reducing the car parking. We're just saying right. what kind of giving flexibility and how you can, how you can allow people to park on your property. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and some of these requirements are just so huge. Like they can be two or 2.5 parking spots per residential unit. And, and Tony, you did that research about how many uh, rental households Go have what census. level of cars. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the census I, has I, I mean, I just did in Colorado, but I've looked in Maricopa County, you know, in Arizona, I've looked in Orange County in Florida, you know, whole states. You look at the census table for vehicle ownership of renter households. And I have yet to find a place where a majority of renter households own two cars and they usually own one or fewer. And the most common ratio is around one and a half spaces per unit for multifamily to two to two and a half. So we're by 50% right away requiring more parking than half the, 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 the renter households want or need. Right. And let's get into that. Cause I think it's important for like for the, for the Minnesota data specifically. So, so we're talking about renter households, the entire household, right? And 19% of renter households in Minnesota have zero cars. 48% of them have one car. So add those together, that's 67% of Minnesota renter households have one or zero cars. And if a suburb has a parking mandate of two or 2.5, even if they're completely car dependent, and even if you have you know, a, a household that has a car and depends on it, the requirements are far exceeding the amount that they need. Yeah. Last question. I have heard it said that you should not meet your heroes. I had a chance to sit down with Professor Shoup last last year, and I, my comment to the team here at Strong Towns was that whoever said that is wrong. I have had a chance to interact with him a couple times and then meet him in person the once. And in my mind, it's hard to imagine a more humble, a more generous a more truly like delightful person than him. I, I wanted to give each of you an opportunity because I know you've you've had some interactions. We just referred to the book at the beginning with the assumption that everybody knew <laughs> right. what we were talking about. He is a, a giant in many ways, but um, talk a little bit about Donald Shoup as a as a human being. Well, you want to go first, Chris? Yeah, I haven't actually had the privilege to meet him in person. I would love to. I invited him to come, <laughs> but he wasn't able to make it. He is the one who really put this issue on the radar, and I don't think these changes would have come forward without him. So I'm extremely grateful to all the work that he did. Mm -hmm. 
Tony. I sent him an email during Portland's that battle, you know, 10, 11 years ago. He wrote back right away. Um, he's been so generous. And now, and I've heard this over and over from other people with his time. I visit with him about once, at least once a year. I'm from Los Angeles, so I go down there. And, and that was you know, how I developed a relationship partly was I was like, hey, let's go to lunch. And, and he, you know, I, I used to joke, I never, in, when I was in college, I never got to go to the faculty club. I never really hung out with my professors. And here I am like, you know, going to the faculty club with this, you know, giant in urban planning. He's generous with his time. My main regret, one of my big regrets in life is that I found out about this so late, you know, like I would have loved to have, you know, hung out with, with him and, and all these people 20 years ago, you know, when, when, you know, we could party a little bit more, maybe, you know, I got some good times <laughs> with him, but you know, it's like, I really, I do regret that I, you know, I have a good relationship with him, but I, I really would like to get, would, would have liked to, you know, got to know him earlier. A lot of what drives me is just, I, I it's not the main thing, but it feels really good to work on something that, you know, he's around to see, the impact and i know that he is uh very grateful and supportive of you know seeing this happen i think like it's like gotta be so delightful to like see yeah. you know these bills happening and these cities making the reforms it's like uh, I, so yeah i'm not suggesting he is uh you know going to expire anytime soon he's not a young guy but we've got urgent work to do i want to get this done nationwide yeah. while we still have don shoop with us so he can get the accolades that he deserves for all of this right because i mean you you think about a career uh devoted to this issue decade after decade you know it's one of those sisyphus things where you make no progress you make no progress you make no progress and then bam the whole world changes and i want him to be around and see that whole world change me too let's make it happen in minnesota chris I'll post the link to the bill and obviously the text we could put in a tweet almost. If people want to follow this and it's progress, where can they do that? At the Minnesota legislature website? Is that the best place? Probably by the time your listeners are hearing this, there should be a link available, but I don't think it'll, it's not there yet on the Senate website. It won't be until Tuesday, I think. Okay. Um, but they can reach out to me directly. Chris.Meyer at mnsenate.gov. Gotcha. They can connect with some of the organizations that are working on this. So some of the big ones that are really putting a lot of effort into it are Neighbors for More Neighbors, the Sierra Club, Move Minnesota, and the SEIU. Um, and just to make a call to action, people should be contacting their elected officials at every level of government, uh, because this is something that really does apply to all of them. And you know, some people might think, oh, well, maybe I should wait to see if the state legislature does this before I contact my council member. No, don't wait. Contact your council member right away and ask them to support this, both to try to get them to make this change on the local level, because that really helps a lot. You know, once a local city has done it, then the state legislators have a much easier time getting on board with it. Sure. Um, but also because we, we we want them to take the action and we don't want the elected officials from those cities to be actively opposing it and preferably, you know, get on in support of it. So uh, ask your local electeds to take action and ask your Congress members uh, to take action as well. So uh, we didn't get into it, but uh, Representative Ilhan Omar is uh, co-sponsoring the National People Over Parking Act, which was put forward by Representative Garcia of California, and that would eliminate parking minimums 
within a half mile radius of the transit stations across the country. Uh, so this is really something that applies to every level of government. Contact all your elected officials and ask them to make this change. And w- one last thought, I just wanted to wrap up something we were talking about before. I mean, I really hope that people will look at this issue on its own merits and not let it get caught up in partisan conflicts that we've had up to now. So I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased that you had that good conversation with Alpha News. I, I know that they're not going to agree with me or my boss on a lot of other things, and that's okay. I, I, I just hope that they take a fair look at this issue and understand that like, this is something that should appeal to your your free market libertarian ideals like they, that they talk about those in so many other contexts you know opposing a lot of the things that we want but you know me and my boss we, we cared about it because we care about climate action and housing affordability but there are a lot of other reasons that are are, are things that they should care about as well yeah thank you tony part of what i'm hoping here is that we inspire people across the country to follow Minnesota's lead. I'm I'm a proud Minnesotan and I'm I really do a- admire what Chris is doing and what Senator Fate is doing. How do people get in touch with you if they think their city, their state are ready to take this next step? How do they follow you? How do they get in touch with you? Our domain is pretty easy, parkingreform.org um, and you can find us on all the whatever social media is in, in those places where we're active. They, if they're following strong towns, they probably see us mentioned. We're pretty friendly orgs. There's a membership, but we also are very big into um, partnership models where, you know, local conversations or small or bicycle advocacy groups or whoever we want you to join at no cost to bring you in so that you're have access to, you know, we have a pretty active Slack and just a community of, of information by the summer we will have hired, our policy director, and we'll really start, I think, getting an awareness. I mean, there's bills popping up. There's one in the Illinois Senate. It's not as expansive as the one in, in Minnesota, but like I, I'm finding out about these often after they're filed. By the time this podcast come out, there's one in Colorado that's going to be in between, but still pretty serious. So I think we're just going to highlight these bills and, and make it more, make it normal. It's not extreme. <laughs> it just, it's, it's common sense. And, and I think so, yeah, get in touch and we'll do it together. And yeah, we've had people Perfect. from, I think, eight states now have, have reached out to Fateh's office asking for the legislation and, and how they can do that in their state. So it really is growing pretty fast. And I also just want to emphasize like joining the parking reform network and and being on that Slack is really valuable. It's it's been tremendously helpful for me to be able to just put on there like I need more information about this and there are all kinds of people who are able to help. So please do join the parking reform network. And then you can follow us both on Twitter as well. My handle on that is is Chris John Meyer, C H I R S J O H N M E Y E R. And what's the parking reform one, Tony? Parking underscore reform is our uh, our our handle on Twitter. Yeah. Perfect. Chris Meyer from Senator Fate's office, Tony Jordan from the Parking Reform Network. Thank you to both of you for taking the time. Thanks for all the work that you're doing. And everybody out there listening, take Chris's advice. Go talk to somebody about parking reform in your city, in your region, in your state. Having that conversation will give people confidence to go forward and and do a policy that is the right thing. It's universally the right thing. It's one of those few things that I think left, right, every city, regardless of size, this is a universal good. And if we can get this passed in all 50 states, 
We'll throw a big party at UCLA for Donald Shoup. Everybody will be there. I promise I will be there. Tony and Chris will be there. Everybody will be invited to hang out and we will uh, we'll make it a grand thing. So thanks. Thanks to both of you guys for being here. Thank you, Chuck. I'm looking forward to that party. Thanks yeah. so much. I'll see you at the National Gathering in a few months. Perfect. I can't wait, Tony. And everybody listening, keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.